0: Sometimes it's hard to look away from the spectacle of a televised congressional hearing. We've had our choice of dramatic ones to pick from lately. But we want to start today's episode by revisiting one from an earlier era.
1: I saw that idea of using the Ayatollah Khomeini's money to support the Nicaraguan freedom fighters as a good one. I still do. I don't think it was wrong I think it was a neat idea.
0: The Iran-Contra hearings transfixed America in 1987, like some Cold War-era Game of Thrones that involved a complicated political scandal, a special counsel, and a long list of characters who testified in front of a House and Senate committee on television for 41 days. Chief among those testifying was Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, quite a figure with his crisp, Marine officer's uniform and his patriotic outrage. But by his side throughout the testimony was his lawyer, Brendan Sullivan, just as battle ready in a suit and tie. Sullivan famously went toe to toe with the Senator chairing the proceedings, Daniel Inouye. Here's a memorable bit from day 25. You'll hear Senator Inouye's voice first. I'm certain counsel realizes that this is not a court of law.
1: I believe me I know that.
0: And I'm certain you realize that the rules of evidence do not apply
1: in this inquiry. That I know as well. I'm just asking for fairness, fairness. I know the rules don't apply. I know the Congress doesn't recognize attorney-client privilege, a husband and wife privilege, priest-penitent privilege. I know those things are all out we the window. We have attempted we ri- to be fair. And we rely on, fair on just fairness, can. Mr. Chairman. Fairness. Let Please. the witness object if he wishes to. Well, sir, I'm not a potted plant. I'm here as the lawyer. That's my job. Brendan
0: Sullivan has been one of the most tenacious trial lawyers in Washington for five decades, and never, ever a potted plant in any of the high-profile cases he's taken on. The adversary you hope to never face in court on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard
2: that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance.
0: It all was so clear. It, It
2: was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie
1: could prevail over the truth, darkness over light death over life.
0: Every day I wake up and decide today I'm going to love my life.
1: Decide. Decide. Decide.
0: Decide. My advice is if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there.
1: (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for but boy you better not miss them.
0: The vast majority of criminal lawyers' work is not glamorous in the least, or heart-pounding, no matter how it looks on television. But, Brendan Sullivan says,
1: it's never routine. It's extraordinary how there's no limit to the work as a lawyer. It's not like a heart surgeon. You go in for five hours, and you know which tubes to tie together, and you'll finish that operation, and now the patient has to make it on their own. Law's not like that. Law is never-ending. You can spend 500 hours preparing something and thinking about it. And then on that 501st hour, you get some new revelation of some kind. And now you have have a sense you've got to ask this question that way. And so you learn over time that it's submitting yourself to this horrible, long, tedious, endless process that you know if you keep working like that till the end of time, which is what the trial is, right? The end of time, and you keep thinking like that and you work at it 18 hours a day and you wake up thinking about it, then you know you will have done your best for your client. Because after all, in law, just as in surgery, the client's life is in your hands if you're dealing with a criminal case. Their life, their reputation, their family's lives, their children.
0: Sullivan has been at the same Washington law firm for coming up on 50 years, almost his entire legal career. Almost. There was this one case that he stumbled into before he was even a practicing attorney, a high-stakes case that altered the course of Brendan Sullivan's life and may have even altered the course of America in the late 1960s. It might surprise you a bit. If your first glimpse of Sullivan was him sitting at the side of the highly decorated Marine officer, Oliver North. Brendan Sullivan had graduated from Georgetown Law School during the Vietnam War, and because he was in the ROTC, he entered the service as a first lieutenant. Within a year, he was a captain, stationed in San Francisco, practically next door at the Presidio, which was still then an Army base, trouble was brewing. Brendan Sullivan set the scene for Washington Post correspondent Mary Jordan, who interviewed him in 2018 for the Academy of Achievement. The Presidio's stockade was filled way beyond capacity with young soldiers, 18 to 20-year-olds. Many of them were there, most, because they were against the war and had deserted or gone AWOL. One day, a group of them sat down in the yard and staged a protest against the conditions there.
1: They sat closely together, they held hands, and they sang, We Shall Overcome. And the captain of the Presidio Stockade came out with an open book, and he said to these 27 young people, if you don't get back in that building right away, stop singing, stop showing the V sign, I'm going to charge you with mutiny. And he read the Mutiny Act out of the law book.
2: And the context here is this is the late 1960s in San Francisco.
1: Yes, that's right. This is the Vietnam War era. It's mid-1968. These soldiers uh, had lived with a other, another soldier who had escaped from the stockade about a week or two before. And I use that term escape very loosely. He really walked away, and uh, he really seemed to do it as a suicide. And he told a soldier on a detail he was going to walk away. And he said, will you shoot me? And there was some exchange of words. And then the soldier walked away, and he was shot dead. And this, together with conditions in the stockade, overcrowding, and all of those kind of things. And
2: protests, anti-war protests right. all over the country, particularly all, at Berkeley, which was nearby. That's right.
1: and. Uh, in California, there were protests all the time. 50,000 people would walk down the street and, uh, on a regular basis on weekends, and they'd be protesting the war. So,
2: And you're 28 years
1: old? That's right. I was 28. And by the way, I was not a JAG officer in the, in the law department. I was a captain in the Transportation Corps. I had nothing to do with law. But in the military in those days, A soldier had the right to ask any officer to defend themselves. And it was virtually sacrosanct that the military would make that officer available unless there was something crucial in his line of duty. And uh, so the, the short of it was I was asked by one of these soldiers to represent them and then was confronted as a novice lawyer, never having practiced a day, having passed the bar by then, and indeed, uh, to tell you the truth, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school to have a law degree, to go into business, and that's the way I approached law. I thought I, I thought I would go back and be a business person. But out in San Francisco, when they asked to defend someone, and then someone's life is placed in your hands, and you have to figure out how to save that person, then that That makes law and law education come to life. Now you've got somebody that depends upon you. And in this particular situation, these young men sat there on that day for another half hour or an hour. And they didn't get up. In the meantime, they bring in the military police. There wasn't a blow uh, struck by anyone. The military police came in and they just picked up the limp bodies of several of the 27 and brought them back into the building, and subsequently all 27 were charged with mutiny, which had a death penalty. Now, quickly in the, in the process of going through the case, the death penalty was eliminated. But the long and short of it, to jump to the conclusion, is the 27 were tried in about five separate trials. They were front-page stories at the time in, in San Francisco. Uh, protesters against the war adopted these young people as heroes at the time and and so what the government did was the command at the post a three-star general at the Presidium commander of the sixth army decided they would make the so-called federal case out of this charge these young men with uh, mutiny and there were I'll skip over the fights and the drama of the courtroom but the the sentence for the first of the half a dozen uh, young men that were convicted in the court-martial was 18 years. Now that, to me, was the most shocking thing I'd ever experienced. You just
2: happened to be assigned to defend them?
1: I wasn't even assigned. I was asked by one of the soldiers uh, who had heard, I guess, that I was a lawyer was as simple as that. I was actually on another base. There was a little base called Fort Mason, adjacent to the Presidio, which had a half a dozen offices, a lovely um, a cocktail lounge, and a, and a view uh, on a cliff overlooking San Francisco Bay. And uh, I had nothing to do with, with the Presidio until this soldier asked for me by name. And remember, in a court-martial, you have military officers that are the jurors. And a military judge, of course, is another one of the JAG officers. And so it was clear to everybody in the case that the commanding general wanted to make an example out of these young men.
2: What did you want to do?
1: I wanted to demonstrate that they should not be in prison. This is not uh, an offense worthy of prison, or if it is, it was disobedience at most. And eventually, skip ahead a couple of years, uh, the Court of Appeals said just that. This was not mutiny, this was disobedience.
0: There are well-known photographs of the incident you can find with a quick Google search. In one, you see the young men sitting in protest with their representative reading a list of grievances. In another, you see the captain reading the mutiny act from his rule book while the young men sing. It's almost as if they were acting out a play, but it was all too real. The protesters were sentenced initially to serious time in Leavenworth. But before that happened, there was another development in the story we haven't touched on yet. The three-star general who had decided to bring the charges and appoint the prosecutors and the jury didn't like Brendan Sullivan
1: one bit. I was the only military officer who was not a, a judge advocate general officer. So when it came to doing some of the harsher defense moves, like accusing the general of command influence, which is a common defense, command influence, that he made it clear he wants a conviction and this is what he wants. Uh, I was the one that would be out front because my thought was, and, and the other officers, I only had a year and a half left in service or I, at the time. What could he do to me? It wasn't even my base, theoretically. But the other officers were in his command. In a moment's notice, he could send them to Timbuktu to handle misdemeanor cases instead of San Francisco. So I was the one that would send a subpoena to the general and accuse him of command influence and ask that he be brought to court so I could question him. And when I sent that subpoena, the general did two things. He ripped up the subpoena and he ordered me to Vietnam. And at that point, I had to virtually leave court in the middle of the proceedings a get out of my apartment lease. Get my shots for Vietnam. Uh, go to training and crawl under barbed wire while they're shooting bullets over my head. So I would know enough not to stand up if I if I ended up in a, in a war zone. And so that was what they he did because he did not like the way I was defending these soldiers. Now it happens happenstance that there were two wonderful, truly wonderful. Irish reporters that worked for the San Francisco Chronicle. They followed the trials. And when they saw that I did not appear in court, they ran a Pearl Harbor headline on the top of the first half of the newspaper saying, Army captain transferred to war zone. And that started a rolling effect. Now, at the time this happened, I had only six months left in service. I didn't know at the time no officers ever sent to Vietnam with six months left in service. There was a rule. You couldn't be sent unless you had a year to spend in Vietnam. I didn't know that at the time. But at any rate, the reporters continued to run these stories. That caught the eye of congressmen. I went home to le- on leave, and two things happened in my four or five days at home in Rhode Island. One was that two senators called me, picked up the phone, and there they were. They introduced themselves, and they simply said, are you the captain that had been ordered to Vietnam, and I don't remember the rest of the conversation, I never contacted them, I never complained about it. And the other memorable thing on that trip home to Rhode Island was that the famous Walter Cronkite uh, called and asked if I'd be interviewed in the backyard of my home about what had happened and why I was going to Vietnam. at
2: their court-martial. Now, with just seven months left to serve on his army tour, Captain Sullivan has been assigned to Vietnam. Today, two senators, New York's Republican Charles Goodell and California's Democrat Alan Cranston, expressed fear that Sullivan's assignment stems from his court defense of those mutineers They've asked.: And the so Army, you have a, a general who's punitively sending you to war where a lot of people died. You have, you're on the evening news, you're really young, you haven't done a lot of cases. What's going through your head at the time?
1: I, I was completely. Uh, unflustered by the fact they'd ordered me to Vietnam. I couldn't understand it. I really didn't think. I was not an officer trained in the shooting part of the war. I wasn't going to jump out of airplanes with machine guns, I thought. I was a transportation officer. I'd probably be in some headquarters somewhere, uh, running 150 vehicles. That's what army captains did in Transportation Corps. So it didn't, but it amazed me. It did amaze me. And it underscored the fact that they could do anything they wanted to these young people. It was not about me. It was about what they did to these young people and what military justice was. The fact of the matter is, it was an interesting footnote, wasn't it? That they're so powerful and they have so much influence, and no doubt, remember, I accuse them of command influence. Well, isn't this a bit of command influence? That they can reach in and take one of the defense lawyers and have the nerve to say, you're going to go 2,000, you know, 6,000 miles away to Vietnam and you're out of these trials. It underscored what we were trying to say. So, if anything, I felt good at the fact that the appellate lawyers could then argue, not only did they do this to the kids, but look at what they did to his lawyer. And so I thought in the long run it would help the case. I, I was a bit amused. You know? That,
2: does that ability, which carried forward later in life, somehow help you because you don't get flustered?
1: Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I just uh, keep my eye focused on what the, what the mission is, so to speak. This was about these kids. Everybody understood because you had a picture of the crime. <laughs> Twenty-seven soldiers sitting on a lawn, linking arms, singing, holding a V up.
2: And then you hear 18 years, and you think it's wrong.
1: The average citizen says, well, what is this? What's going on? And then the next thing that happens is, what do you mean they're sending the lawyers? Maybe it was, I didn't think of it at the time this way, but a bit of a tipping point. People started to look, okay, if they're bold enough to send a lawyer to Vietnam, what are they doing to these kids? In the
2: end, you weren't shipped out, right?
1: I was not shipped out. I had two or three days left to go before I was to go on the plane at Travis Air Force Base. And I'm watching the news, just doing nothing. I had nothing to do during the day, killing two days. And there's a picture of a reporter approaching the plane of the Secretary of the Army, Stanley Reesor. And he shoved a microphone in his face. I'll never forget. He says, what are you doing about Captain Sullivan? And he gruffly said, I canceled the orders today and walked off. That was my first knowledge that— I was not going to be a nun. then I went back to court.
0: Brendan Sullivan told Mary Jordan he'd been pretty blissfully naive until this case. He grew up in Warwick, Rhode Island, with a dad who was a salesman for a chemical company and a police commissioner, and a mom who wrote magazine articles and poetry. Life was rosy, and he never witnessed any sort of injustice up close, until the Presidio Mutiny case. It opened his eyes wide, And made him decide that he did want to be a lawyer, not a businessman, after all.
2: That proved to be a key moment in your life because of what we're going to talk about next. Captain Sullivan caught the eye of Edward Bennett Williams. Yes. At the time, the most famous criminal lawyer in America.
1: Yes, absolutely. He was the Clarence Darrow of our time. I mean, he was, uh, I think he was on the cover of Time magazine in his 30s. This was, this was. Something, you know, I would never have thought about. I was probably going to go back to Rhode Island with my dear friend, Jim Skeffington, whom I met in law school, who who was a Mr. Rhode Island type, and practiced law in Rhode Island. And uh, as I I jokingly say, I was... uh, probably practice law you get your name in the newspaper you might actually get some clients you can make a living then you run for politics you might even be governor and then you go right to jail after that that's what Rhode Islanders do you know Uh, but instead but instead
0: one night in 1969 Sullivan was having dinner with one of his Georgetown law professors who had seen all the news stories about his former student
1: and at dinner he said to me in his Deep, deep voice, I can still hear. He said, you must go see my friend, Edward Bennett Williams. And of course, I thought it was the most absurd suggestion I'd ever heard from an adult.
0: But a few days later, the professor went ahead and called Williams, who'd co-founded the firm Williams & Connolly. And so Brendan Sullivan had to follow through with a meeting.
1: He never asked me if I was on Lord Journal or whether I'd clerk for any judge. He was simply fascinated with, how did I get myself into so much trouble in the military? And so uh, we talked about the case, and we talked about what the military did, and we talked about justice. And uh, at the end of a 30-minute conversation, he said to me words I can still hear ringing, OK, kid, uh, we'll give you a shot. And by the way, I walked out of his office so stunned and I got to the elevator, which is no more than 20 steps away, and I wondered, did he say, we'll give you a shot, or did he say, maybe we'll give you a shot? At which time, I was frozen at the elevator, not knowing whether to get on it or go back in and ask him, and I decided I'm not going back <laughs> in there. So I got on the elevator, I went back to the uh to the military for my last month or two in service. This would have been in November and December of 69. Uh, and uh, I wrote a letter to him, and I said, thank you so much, uh, I'll report uh, at the law firm on January 2, 1970. And I never heard a word back. So I showed up. Sullivan ended
0: up in the office right next to Edward Bennett Williams, which may have been happenstance,
1: But Williams clearly took a shine to the new young attorney. I think he admired my spunk, I think he called it, that uh, I could get in a fight and survive the fight and and willing to take on authority, probably. Uh, I didn't see it that way at the time. I, I just was always wondering, why did he hire me, you know? There was one other thing Williams liked about Sullivan. You know, he always was snacking on something. And uh, I found he liked planters, peanut butter crackers, you know, the pack with the six crackers in it. And uh, I, I got a big box of those crackers and I put it in my right bottom drawer of my desk. And when he'd come in, I'd offer him, uh, uh, and he'd always take it. And sometimes I'd be on the phone, he wouldn't even say anything, just walk in, open my drawer, take the crackers. He'd sit down in a little flimsy chair, he's a big man. Gosh, he. weighed over 250 pounds most of the time, and he'd lean back in this rickety chair. I never knew whether it would collapse. He'd rip open these cookies. The crumbs would scatter on his his shirt, and uh, inevitably we would chat for a few minutes, and the secretary would call him into a phone call. He'd get up, he'd run out of the office, and then it looked like Hansel and Gretel had just been there. I could follow the crumbs from my desk right into his office. The two men became close friends. They played squash together,
0: though not very well. And Brendan Sullivan says he learned a lot from the founding
1: partner. He called trial work uh, work like, like pick and shovel work in the mines, one little chunk at a time.
0: No matter how talented you are, no matter how experienced. He also learned that you often have to work inhuman hours and, during the months before trial, live like a monk. One time in a very big case, Brendan Sullivan says he spent 2,000 hours preparing for a single deposition. That's way off the charts, even for a lawyer. But in this particular case of a bank suing a law firm, it was worth it. The client prevailed.
2: You've done so many famous cases. Let's start with Oliver North. Um, Famously, we can still see you. You actually look quite the same as you did on TV that everybody saw.
1: That's 30 years ago, by the way.
2: We saw you there um, beside Oliver North, not afraid to tell the senators to, as you would say, back off. (laughs) Um, What was it like?
1: Well, first off, remember, no one is ever trained to go to Congress for six days on all channels nationally and worldwide to represent a client. There's no training, there's no experience, no one fantasizes about how you would do that. So you just have to be guided by basic principles. What am I there for? I'm there to protect this soldier from the things that can happen during testimony. The major thing that can happen that could harm him would be that he could testify in a way that someone would later say is false. And so your goal, your whole, the whole thing you can do is to make sure he tells the truth. And that what he says cannot be construed as a falsehood. And remember by that time, there was an independent council who had been appointed Larry Walsh, a former federal judge who had been in retirement, was called back, so to speak, and uh, he had the resources of America uh, to give you an example of how many resources such a person would have, and that 's what I was thinking about during congressional testimony, this fellow's resources. I never thought he'd have this this much, but at the end of the case, five years later after Lawrence Walsh was defeated and Ali North was completely free, Uh, we discovered that in the pleadings that were filed in the court, they had 100 separate prosecutors sign those pleadings. Think about that. One hundred, not all at a time, through various stages of that thing. We had five lawyers on our side. They had a hundred. That doesn't begin to count the FBI and the customs agents and the, uh, F- and the uh, IRS agents. So at the hearings, what am I doing? I'm trying to protect him from what I know is coming, a five-year war. And yes. tactically, the crucial thing was to make sure that he got immunity, immunity. Uh, we were the one witness that said to the Congressional, uh, the assembled senators and congressmen, we would not testify without compelled immunity. We gave no interview beforehand. We would not cooperate with those kinds of things that most people would cooperate with. Many people don't want to take the Fifth Amendment, understandably, in front of the whole world. And that was the toughest thing to convince Ollie North that he had, as a Marine, a decorated Marine, had to stand before the world and take the Fifth Amendment in order to trigger that process of immunity so that not only will he testify truthfully on those six days of, of testimony, but, That what he said could not be used by that army of prosecutors and, and government agents that we knew were coming after him.
0: In the end, it was that grant of immunity that saved Oliver North. He had orchestrated an elaborate illegal scheme to fund the Contra rebels in Nicaragua with money diverted from the illegal sale of weapons to Iran. It was a complicated, multi-pronged end run around Congress. During the Senate and House hearings, he admitted that he misled Congress and ordered the shredding of government documents. And in the trial that followed, he was found guilty on three counts because the prosecution argued that Colonel North's immunity did not protect him from the testimony of other witnesses who had independent knowledge of his crimes. The appeals court, though, found that those witnesses might have been tainted by North's own testimony. So the convictions were reversed and the charges dropped. And he went on to a career as a writer and a conservative commentator for Fox News. But of course, that all came later.
2: So it's the Iran-Contra affair. You're sitting in the congressional hearing up on Capitol Hill beside Ali North. And you were said things when asked a question, that's none of your business. I'm just asking for fairness. were you very conscious that you also had to be likable because you wanted to push back, but you also didn't want to come across you know as too abrasive?
1: First off, remember that uh, I was scared to death. This is not something anyone does on a regular basis. so I didn't have a calculated plan as to what I would do. It was, it all came from within. Nothing was planned. Not one word was planned. I didn't know what the process was going to be like. I just responded to each and every question. Sometimes I'd get upset. The greatest compliment ever, ever paid to me, actually, by my uh, kids. At those hearings, my kids were Eight, nine, ten eleven, right around that age, and they were watching the hearings down at uh, in a summer a summer place, but of course, they're bored right they're not going to stay indoors and watch six days of hearings, so they'd say to their mother, We're going out to play, uh, call us when he yells because they'd never seen me yell, <laughs> so if you get excited. You do so because someone you're trying to protect is being hurt, or they're doing something wrong, or they're doing something unfair. That's easily easy for me to react. It's not so much planned. Now, did I learn? We learned something over these six days. I mean, the first day was very hostile to Ollie North and caused me to be more aggressive to try to protect him. I took advantage of the fact I could whisper in his ear. That was a powerful thing. If you note, until the recent Supreme Court uh, hearings, no lawyer since my time up there has been allowed to sit next to the witness. They now have moved the lawyers back into the front row so they can't turn and consult with the witness and tell him, watch out, that's a bad question. He just asked three questions. Answer the last question. You know, you you could try to Uh, protect your client by being part of the answering process, which is very different than a courtroom. So I can tell you that uh, that part of it, there were were great tactical thinking about how to present him in terms of forcing the immunity and never giving interviews. And by the way, as a story I tell, the only argument Ollie North and I ever had was the argument about whether he should wear a uniform. I uh, Ollie wanted not to wear a uniform. He didn't want to embarrass the Marine Corps. And uh, at least I had the sense to know that a decorated Marine Corps officer would play well if forced to testify. I had no idea that he'd become a hero to, par- to 50% of the whole world.
0: And it played well too, Mary Jordan pointed out in this interview, when Brendan Sullivan came out with his famous line about the potted plant. I know we played it at the top of the episode, but now that we've gotten to the Ollie North portion of the story, it seems worth a second hit.
1: Let the witness object if he wishes to. Well, sir, I'm not a potted plant. I'm here as the lawyer, that's my job.
0: Was that an
2: ad lib or was that, as they say, rehearsed spontaneity?
1: Absolutely ad lib. You know, uh, maybe I could confess that that's a flip Irish humor of sorts. I had no idea that it would someday be in Bartlett's quotations or that it would go around the world. Uh, at our law firm, it was amusing. It was everyone there in those days would remember We received hundreds of potted plants from around the world, just poured into the office, shut down the office virtually. We, we gave half of them away after we'd given everyone in the office two or three plants.
2: Is it still a
0: terrarium over there?
1: <laughs> One partner actually kept his alive for almost 20 years. <laughs> it was amazing.
0: The Oliver North hearing and the trial that followed secured Brendan Sullivan's reputation as aggressive, fearsome, a street fighter in round tortoiseshell glasses. One article I read said that his peers view him as the courthouse equivalent of a nuclear war and as someone who very well might land the prosecutor himself in hot water. It's happened an unusual number of times that Brendan Sullivan has exposed misconduct by overzealous government lawyers. One of the most glaring examples of that was in 2008 when Sullivan represented Alaska Senator Ted Stevens. Senator Stevens was accused of failing to report to the Senate gifts he'd received. The jury found him guilty a week before his election, so he lost. But it turned out the prosecutors at the Department of Justice made terrible errors and just outright hid evidence.
1: It's the worst scandal in, in the Justice Department that we've seen, at least in my lifetime, our generation of lawyers. The, the judge said it's the worst misconduct he'd ever seen. The
0: government has an obligation, established by a Supreme Court decision known as Brady, to share evidence that might help show a defendant's innocence. So the new attorney general at the time, Eric Holder, ordered the case dismissed.
2: Why was the government lying?
1: That, that's a good question. Why does the government lie they lie because they have—give them the benefit of the doubt. They believe in their cause. They believe the person did something wrong. They fear losing. And now they lie to win. They lie and cheat to win. Now this is not all prosecutors, not all government agents. Ninety-seven percent of them are totally honest uh, people. We all live happily in our homes and are safe because of the work all of these men and women do in their careers. Very rare. we're talking about one and half million cases. But there are sometimes, and unfortunately, I've seen it oh, half a dozen times, where the government itself becomes the criminal. And it's the most disgusting thing you see. I even feel it, I feel it physically when I think about what they can do to people with their power. And it's the same feeling I had back in the Presidio case when they can take young men, and if they decide, they put them in prison for 18 years for something really silly at most disobedience on a sunny day in California.
2: You know You wrote um, a wonderful speech that you gave at Georgetown law school commencement, and in it you said,
1: "I cannot." still find the right words to describe to you the feeling a lawyer has when a client is subject to abuse and injustice. It's a feeling of helplessness, anger, rage. The miscarriage of justice foisted upon the young soldiers was beyond my experience in life, beyond anything I'd learned about in law school, I naively believed that people with power use the power wisely. I hadn't thought about that for years, but that states it pretty well. And, and it also, I would add to it, a, a mystery. I still don't understand it. I mean, I can articulate how it happens. Think about, think about it from the prosecutor's point of view. They put their heart and soul in a case. They brought a case. Somewhere along the way, they have this terrifying feeling, like defense lawyers have all the time, a terrifying feeling that they could lose this case. And so what do they do? It's at that point they have to decide what's important. They start to think of themselves in the Stevens case. If you lose a case against a United States senator every day for the rest of your life, if you stay in the government, you're going to walk down those corridors, you're going to attend meetings, and they're going to look at you as the person that lost the Stevens case. That's your life. Now, you won't be fired. You'll have a job. But if you ever wanted to go out into private practice and earn those big salaries, no law firm's going to take you, having been the person that lost such an amazing case. In the Stevens case, you had people that lost their way.
2: What happened to the prosecutor in the Stevens case? First
1: off, no prosecutors were ever punished. No prosecutors were disbarred for unlawful, unethical conduct. The saddest of all footnotes and of all cases I've ever been in is that one young prosecutor committed suicide after this was discovered, during the time he was under investigation. And I believe some of the other prosecutors were particularly pointing the finger at him. Newly married, I don't know, early 30s, hung himself in his basement, very sad.
0: Brendan Sullivan and his team also exposed horrendous prosecutorial misconduct in another case, the Duke lacrosse players who were accused of rape in 2006. The case was fraught from the beginning. The accused were three rich white young men, while the accuser was an African-American woman who was a stripper with a troubled past. The case involved a prestigious university and the district attorney prosecuting was running for reelection. Brendan Sullivan told interviewer Mary Jordan it was like something made up in the movies, complete with a sketchy DNA report.
1: Picture this scenario. Mr. Nifong, the district attorney, is sitting in his office. <clears throat> he has with him the detective working on the case, and the scientist comes in and he makes the report. And the scientist says to him, I, I've got bad news. Mr. District Attorney, the bad news is there's nothing Uh, no DNA evidence from any of the boys in this case. But I have even worse news, Uh, the woman had already testified that there were no other men involved for weeks, that only the rapists were involved in sexual contact with her. But the scientist says to the district attorney, the bad news is that there are five other men, at which time the district attorney turns to the detective, he says, we're screwed. And he goes back, turns back to the scientist, he says, you can't put that in the report. Don't put in there the fact that there are five other DNA samples from other men.
0: That's actually how it went down, according to the scientist, who was cross-examined in court and spilled the beans. And so at that point, the judge stopped the trial. The DA was disbarred, and the Attorney General of North Carolina took over the case and, after a couple months' investigation, declared the lacrosse players innocent. The very public case was damaging for real rape victims. It was traumatic, obviously, for the college students who were falsely accused, and it was undermining to the public's confidence in government lawyers.
1: We went and we tried to sue civilly afterwards to make the point that prosecutors, detectives, they can't do this to people. You're doing justice here. You cannot abuse your power. The worst thing in the world is abusing power. Think about it. And we ran into a complete dead ends, spent millions of dollars trying, and failed. Because basically uh, the law of the land is that prosecutors are absolutely immune. It's a, it's a Supreme Court decisions which make prosecutors immune from these kinds of acts, even when they're egregious.
2: What kind of toll did all these high-profile, high-pressure, exhausting trials take on you?
1: I don't know. I've always been amazed that uh, I've actually survived them. I sometimes can be in court and your heart's beating twice as fast, and you say, well, how how can this continue?
2: Ever make a mistake in court?
1: I'm sure. Well, I what I tell the young people, uh, you know, as a senior partner in a law firm, I never scold any young person for anything they do. And I always say that the objective is to make fewer mistakes than the other side of the case. That's what you want to do. You make 10,000 decisions in any given case. and. Sometimes you wish you didn't take that tactic and you try to readjust, but it's, it's a long, long war in these things. Remember, these cases, they don't come in and out the door every six months. You take a case, you're living with that case for the next three to five, sometimes 10 years.
2: When you open a courtroom trial, do you do anything? Do you go into the bathroom and say a prayer or <laughs> have something that you keep in mind? How do, you, how do you get in that last few minutes before it all starts? After all the prep, what's going on in your head?
1: What's going on in my head is that the government has dug a hole 200 feet deep. And now I'm trying to crawl out of it with with no tools. Dark, deep, narrow hole. That's what I think. And I've got to get to the top. In my opening argument, I just want to somehow get even to make the jury think that there is another story here. Because remember… They spent the first hour, two or three or four, listening to the United States government tell about these people. That is hard to overcome with all their power, all their investigative tools, their grand juries, their subpoenas, their witnesses that they can lawfully bribe. But if I gave someone a $50 bill to testify, I'd end up in jail, right? So the, the, the odds are always against you when you go against the United States government. And the, the risks for the client are so high. It's what, what I find difficult, very, very difficult. And in fact, I made, a, I made a mistake in my speech to the Georgetown grads. I said in there somewhere and to encourage them to understand their duties, uh, I said to them that my generation had fought injustice to a tie. And I was there saying, okay, we've done our job, we're at the end of the line, now you've got to take it up, you know, because I think there's a sense when you get out of law school that this is a really good system, that it, it works well, it works as it should do. You've You've been reading all these cases and you see how they come out and the courts are thoughtful and so forth and so on. And they don't begin to see or understand the, the heart of the system, which can be very, very treacherous and horrible. And so if I, five years after that or whatever it is, six or seven years, I'd say my generation has gone backwards. I'd say nowadays the government has so much power that you almost cannot afford to take the risk of trial. And let me explain it this way. At some time in the representation, you'll be sitting with your client in your office and the trial will be looming just over the horizon. And you'll say, say to the client, if, if you can plead guilty, I can get you between five and seven years in jail. But if you go to trial and they get you on all these counts, and you testify, and they impose the sentencing penalty on your testimony. You can go to jail for 12 or 15 years. Now, you go home and you talk to your spouse about what you want to do. Think about that. Every case is like that nowadays, every case. So the government structures a case so that they impose so much risk that even the innocent won't face trial. You want to guarantee a good cry? Go to the New York fundraiser every year for the Innocence Project and see them put on the stage 20 black gentlemen, maybe a woman, maybe one white, and they hand the microphone to the guy at the end, and he says, my name is Willie Jones, and I was in Lompoc prison for 26 years for a crime I didn't commit. I mean, I... and then it goes to the next one. It says the same thing. So what do we do? I think it takes dramatic change, and I'm not sure we're capable of making it think we're so set in our ways, uh, the system is so established. Uh, for example, even the right to trial. Should the right to trial be an ability of someone to go into court and require the government to prove their guilt, which is what we thought it was? Is, is that what the right to trial is? But how can you have a right to trial if you're gambling your whole life every time you go to trial? The sentencing guidelines have reduced trials. In the federal system, do the research, I've forgotten the numbers now, but I'm just taking in the range of, we could have 50,000 federal indictments a year, only a couple of hundred go to trial. We've developed a plea machine, and the ingredients in the cake that's baked is that the prosecutors overcharge multiple counts, as much money as possible, so that if you go to trial, your life's over. There's no seemingly Reasonable way to have a fair contest in a courtroom, where this is where we find the truth. Can the government prove it beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of twelve jurors or not? It's over. I, I think. I would hope we'd see some dramatic changes in the future, and and. If I was giving the commencement address today, I'd change it a little bit, and I'd say you've got to fight for change in the system. You see, I never spend any time fighting for the change in the system. I let the heroes do it. Groups like the Innocence Project uh, or uh, the the Southern Center for Justice. uh, These are the heroes in the law. They really are the heroes, and they do it for little or no money. And uh, they, they, they keep our system at least honest to some extent. I mean, we have a flawed system. It's very flawed.
2: When you're talking to young lawyers who want to make a difference, what do you tell them?
1: I tell them to go to medical school. But uh, look, you, you try to teach by example. You understand your responsibility as a lawyer. It really is a sacred responsibility. The word zealous, is is the word used in our ethical uh, standards, which says that a defense lawyer owes to his client a zealous defense, and that's a pretty strong word. It doesn't mean go home at five o'clock and not think about it. It means you live with it and you fight for your client. That's attorney
0: Brendan Sullivan speaking to the Academy of Achievement in 2018. The interviewer was Mary Jordan, who in her day job is a political correspondent for The Washington Post. Brendan Sullivan has lost only two clients to jail in his 50 years at Williams and Connolly in Washington, D.C. He says that on top of all the hard work, he owes a bit of his success to serendipity and even the luck of the Irish. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is generously funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.